for August Blu-rays again on Adam's Corner. Yes, uh, we used to do this feature on Movie Geeks United, and since Movie Geeks is no more, I have decided to enlist some of my online film fans whose opinions I cherish and respect, and I have one of them on today with me as a guest host. Paige Schechter is a terrific person to talk to about film. I just have uh, met her around, uh, 19, uh, let's see, 2017, I think it was, when we were doing the, um, I did the Ray Morton interview for the 40th anniversary of Close Encounters, and I posted it in the Close Encounters page on Facebook, is what I was getting at, and you were in there, and we started chatting, and we became friendly, and we have become We've been fast friends ever since and uh, share so many of the same opinions about things uh, movie-related. And uh, and you also offer just a terrific uh, page of your own, uh, Sibling Cinema. And I can get you to talk a little bit about that before we get started with our August Blu-ray rundown. Okay, well, thank you, Adam. I think it's hilarious that our first contact was – something close encounters of the third kind related because i love movies i love all kinds of movies but that one is my favorite of all kinds so it was a great in point for us to beat um sibling cinema is sort of a media contingent that i do with my sister leia and we have very different movie tastes so we Go, we span the galaxy of, you know, like everything, old movies and horror movies and just anything you can think of, one of us is going to be into it. So that's why we started Sibling Cinema and we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter or X, if you're calling it that, which it's hard to do and threads. (laughs) Um, and we, we do what we call 10 word movie reviews because we both have full time jobs. And we both watch a lot of movies, but we don't have time to review every movie. So we created what we call 10-word movie reviews. Um, and we do not just movies. We also do television. We, a few minutes, a few months ago, finished our full rewatch blog of The X-Files, which took us sort of seven years to do. But we got through the whole series working on a rewatch together, and it's like our shining moments, but we still have our 10 word movie reviews and we're always talking. We're always up for talking movies with anybody on any subject. <laughs> well, you guys are, are both really knowledgeable and we, and we have a lot of, um, a lot of fun when we talk about it. I've talked to both of you at different play, uh, points and, and just, just always so much fun. And, but I think you and I, our tastes are more similar uh, in some what I can surmi- have surmised over the years, and so uh, yeah, and I and it's always given me a sense of pride that I was able to get you the uh, broadcast version of Close Encounters. Oh my god! That for so long, and I found a copy. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have that, and I, I, you know, out of all the versions of that movie I have. I still play that one because hearing the ABC Sunday night theme is part of the experience for me. So you getting that for me means everything, everything in this world and any other world that exists. <laughs> well, that, that's uh, I, I appreciate it. I'm glad it brought you some joy. Now, you have actually made the trek to Devil's Tower at some point, I believe, right? I- I have, and I wanted to do that ever since I saw the movie. You know, as a kid, I'm sketching Devil's Towers on my notebooks at school and everything, and I wanted to go for so long, and 
about I, well, I can't even remember the date now. Like seven years ago or something, my significant other just said, "Let's go," and I'm like, "Well, I'm, <laughs> we're going." And we went there, and it was amazing. I mean, Devil's Tower is an amazing place outside of the movie. Just being there isn't. It's an inspirational place to be. Um, but we also found like these locations where different things were shot. And I don't want to play spoiler for anyone, but like seeing the spot where Roy and Jillian see the tower for the first time, I was amazed at where that was. And I climbed that hill and I said Jillian's line. And it was like, that was it. That's everything. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's on my bucket list. I hope I get to do it someday. Oh, you have. Really you do. must. Have. It's like I said, it's it's remarkable for being, you know, the foundation of Close Encounters, but it's really a very cool place to be. Yeah, I can just imagine. And, uh, you know, I'm so steeped in Close Encounters lore. You know, I, I first saw the film uh, just to talk about Close Encounters in February of 78, because we in our small town that I grew up in, we, you know, we were always way behind the curve and. Uh, it took things longer to come round, and so we finally got it in February of 78, and I was just blown away. I was always, you know, Star Wars is the film that a lot of people talk about uh, from that time, and I like Star Wars. I, I really do. I respect it, but Close Encounters was the one that resonated with me. It was just, uh, you know, something there that Star Wars didn't offer me that Close Encounters did, and it's just so special for me, too. Yeah, exactly the same, and a lot of Close Encounters fans feel the same way. I'm like now co-moderator of the group that I originally met you in, and I also have my own Our Close Encounters of the Third Kind groups. And what people say about that is the same thing. Like, we like Star Wars, but Close Encounters impacted us in a different way, and that's why it, it resonates to this day. That's why it's still my favorite movie. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. It's just, uh, you know, it never never gets old. I haven't seen it since 2017. Actually, I saw the 40th anniversary screening in IMAX on a huge, huge screen that we have here in our area. And it was uh, a fantastic uh, experience to see it projected that way. It was it was amazing. And so uh, but I need to get it out. I have the 4K, but have yet to crack that disc open and i need to because it's been six years it's time it is time it is time and then we'll be discussing it after that i'm sure oh yeah absolutely as as always well we'll get on with this i want to be respectful of your time too and so we have these uh you know the, normally the way we would do this on blue uh movie geeks united rather uh we would just go chronologically i would usually start with some of the labels that have a large number of titles that are released, and that's Kino. Uh, there's just so many Kinos. I try to just get those out of the way right off the bat, and then I go chronologically after that. And so, uh, and some of these you've seen. You stop me when there's something you want to comment on. I know a few of these that you definitely want to comment on, and there may be some <laughs> others that I've forgotten uh, you mentioning. So just stop me. But we will. Uh, I didn't actually get any Kino titles. Full disclosure. It's kind of my own fault. I think. Uh, my contact there, um, he had sent the email uh, back in July, and so I gave him my titles that I wanted to review, and the email got stuck in the uh, – it just didn't go. It was stuck in my drafts box. Oh, no. Yeah, and so I sent it to him again, and I think that he got it confused with requests for another month. And so they, and they were running a little bit behind, I think, with their – so I never got anything for for, uh, for August, unfortunately. But 
you know, we'll, we'll uh, some of these I've seen and can comment on them, but uh, we'll but we'll just go through them at, anyway. And we'll start with uh, Strangers in the House as a film from 1942, directed by Henri Georges Clouseau, who uh, would later go on to make The Wages of Fear, which was remade by William Friedkin, of course, as Sorcerer. And this was one of his early films um, based on a novel by the eminent crime author George Simenon. Some of these names are really tough to get the tongue <laughs> to wrap around. But anyway, and I apologize. I always uh, – Jamie always used to give me a hard time when I would uh, mispronounce something, which happened occasionally because I'm human. But <laughs> anyway, uh, on this uh, Strangers in the House night from 1942, you get a 2K restoration and a new audio commentary by Howard S. Berger and Nathaniel Thompson. And I'm luckily friendly with a lot of these people who do these commentaries. They are also online friends of mine, and they do great work. Uh, I want to vouch for uh, these guys and, and gals who do these. Uh, so if you don't have these films and you're, and you're remotely interested in them, I would say pick them up for the commentaries, if nothing else, because you'll learn a lot. Uh, Outrage, directed by Ida Lupino. You know, she was one of our earliest female directors. This is 1950, and um, it's a uh, they call it a controversial classic, one of the first Hollywood films of its era to deal with the subject of rape. And it uh, was originally re released by Paramount Pictures in 1950, and you get a new audio commentary here by uh, film historian Imogene Imogen Sarah Smith. And there's uh, Audie Murphy Collection, Volume 3. Audie Murphy was a decorated war hero who came back and had a film career after his service. Um, Hell is for Heroes is uh, one of his – probably his most prominent film. But he had quite a few films from for, that he made for Universal. Uh, he died in 1971. He didn't live all that long. Uh, but he kept pumping them out throughout the 60s, and there's uh, several here on this Audie Murphy Collection, Volume 3, Hell Bent for Leather, Posse from Hell, and Showdown. And these start, they, there's some interesting um, actors uh, acting alongside Audie Murphy in these films. You get John Saxon and Felicia Farr and Lee Van Cleef and uh, Vic Morrow, Zora Lambert, and L.Q. Jones and Royal Dano and Struther Martin and Dabs Greer. I mean, that's that's a lineup there. <laughs> That's great. That's a great lineup. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, you get a new commentary uh, for Hell Bent for Leather by uh, Toby Roan, and you get a new commentary by, uh, for Posse from Hell by C. Courtney Joyner and the film historian Henry Park. Uh, the Day and the Hour is a 1963 film directed by Rene Clement, and this is a uh, star Simon Signore in a uh, it's a World War II drama. And uh, she's a lonely, isolated woman who unwittingly gets involved in the resistance during World War II. You get a, a commentary by Sam Deegan on this one, and the theatrical trailer is Paris Burning is another Rene Clement film uh, considered to be one of his best films, I think. And I hate to say that I've never seen is Paris Burning, although it's considered to be one of the uh, the great films, the great foreign films of the 60s. Uh, Jean, Pell, Jean Paul Belmondo, Kirk Douglas, Elaine Delon, Glenn Ford, Orson Welles, Charles, Bo Charles Boyer, Leslie Caron, uh, Jean Pierre Cassel, Bruno Krimmer, Anthony Perkins, Simon Signore again, Robert Stack, Jean Louis, Jean Louis Trintignant, and uh, you know, so there's it's pretty amazing. Yves Montand. <laughs> So is Paris burning? That's that's got enough uh, more stars than there are in heaven. It seems like 
Um, anyway, new commentary by the film historians Daniel Creamer and Howard Berger again, and this was originally a Paramount Pictures release. Uh, American Zoetrope and Francis Ford Coppola helped restore this, and I'm told that it looks quite beautiful. Uh, it's a restoration from a 4K scan of the 35mm camera negative. You get Three into Two Won't Go is 1969 uh, comedy about infidelity starring Rod Steiger and Claire Bloom, a middle-aged couple uh, who um, the male counterpart, played by Rod Steiger, begins an affair with a 19-year-old hitchhiker, played by Judy Geeson. And um, so anyway, um, also starring Peggy Ashcroft. And this uh, includes a television cut in SD. I'm assuming that they they uh, eliminated some, some of the more risque material for television audiences of the 70s when this would have been aired. And it's a new commentary by Troy Howarth and Nathaniel Thompson there. Pretty Baby, 1978, uh, directed by Louis Maul. This is Susan Sarandon, Keith Carradine, and, of course, Brooke Shields. And it's the uh, very controversial film uh, where Brooke Shields plays a 12-year-old prostitute. And uh, she bewitches Keith Carradine, who's a photographer in the film, uh, it's written by Polly Platt, the uh, celebrated production designer of Paper Moon and What's Up Doc and Last Picture Show and many, many other things. And um, you get a uh, new HD master by Paramount from a 4K scan of the 35 millimeter negative. Uh, audio commentary by Kat Ellinger, The Experience of Innocence, Brooke Shields on Pretty Baby, and film historian Leonard Malton on Pretty Baby, and a video essay by Daniel Creamer and a trailer. So... It's a special edition of Pretty Baby from 1978. I have seen this. It has been a while, and um, I was hoping to get to revisit it on the um, Blu-ray, but uh, alas, I didn't get my copy, unfortunately. But uh, there will be another day, hopefully. Uh, so this next one I'm going to let you talk about a little bit. It's Hardcore from 1979. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a recent viewing for you and starring George C. Scott about a deeply religious man trying to rein in his daughter who has uh, uh, ran away from home, I guess you would say, and uh, on a church-sponsored outing runs away and gets involved in the seedy world of pornography. And so, directed by Paul Schrader, I'll get you to talk a little bit about it since I've been yammering on here. Uh, okay. Well, I did not know of this movie before the list of releases came out. So I hear hardcore George <laughs> Scott, Missing Daughter, you're thinking vigilante film, right? Well, my mind was thinking vigilante film. No, you know, sex trade industry. Okay. Um, it sort of plays like a John Wayne film, except I don't think John Wayne had anything to do with the sex trade industry like ever. But like you said, <laughs> George C. Scott, religious man. He's a businessman, father of a teen girl. And... He's still close with one of his in-laws, which is Dick Sargent um, from Bewitched. I finally know which Darren is which on Bewitched, so that's good. <laughs> and his daughter, who didn't even know, like, the most routine kind of teen flirting games beforehand, goes to California on a church group trip and vanishes. And 60% of this movie is about... Dorsey Scott trying to get answers in sex industry places. So um, he employs sketchy detective Peter Boyle for a while. And then he starts working with part-time porn actress, part-time peep show pee-pee, pee-pee. <laughs> that didn't sound right. <laughs> Susan Hubley, who is looking very fetching 
and at times naked and or suggestively posed. Um, she gives a really dynamic per- performance. I imagine it must have been really imposing to act against George C. Scott, but they get a really nice chemistry going, and it serves both of their characters very well. And um, if you want to hear my sibling cinema 10-word movie review for this, I can do that as well. Well, you go ahead. We'll, we're, we're anxiously awaiting it. <laughs> okay. Just a note about 10-word movie reviews. We don't like to keep it in a box. Like, it's it doesn't have to be the dictionary definition of a review. You know, sometimes we're funny. Sometimes we focus on an aspect of it or and generally spoiler-free. So mine was, uptight businessmen and dubious babes should open a detective agency. (laughs) Now, you know, it's funny about this movie because the big uh, thing about it, a lot of people say it totally works until the ending, and the ending just seems so out of place with the rest of the film has been the uh, the complaint that a lot of people have, you know, that it's pretty, pretty, um, you know, it's it's pretty hard hitting stuff. And then it's ridiculous ending where he just takes the daughter home. Spoiler alert. Uh, Total spoiler <laughs> alert. I would <laughs> so, never do that. I, I but... ruined it. I ruined it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So um, anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, I can always cut that out, I guess. But yeah, uh, it seems a little silly uh, if you. But and that may have been studio imposed. I'm not. I can't remember if it was or not. I don't think Paul Schrader was completely happy with that. But uh, nevertheless, not, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, George C. Scott was totally happy with Paul Schrader, but that's a different no. story. Oh, there's a great story about that. I. Um, I heard Paul Schrader on, I think it was on the WTF podcast not too long ago, and he was talking about uh, when he cast George C. E. Scott in the film, and uh, they told him beforehand, they said, now you know you're going to have to, uh, to uh, you know, allow a number of days where that he, he's not going to show up because he's drunk. And he said, oh, we'll get past that. And he said, no, seriously, we at least worked three days into the schedule. And he said, well, he used every one of them. <laughs> 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 so... Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. He 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 famously liked his uh, John Q. Barleycorn, shall we say? So uh, he surely did. Uh, well, there's uh, cinematography here by Michael Chapman, who the year before had done Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and there's a uh, the music is great in this film. Jack Nitsche, who has did the scores for many films, uh, he started out you know as um, a session musician with the Wrecking Crew, and he was good friends with Sonny Bono, and then uh, segued into a career as a film composer, and he did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and uh, Cutter's Way, I believe he did, that's a terrific score, uh, so he contributes another good score here. He also did some work on The Exorcist, a lot of the uh, music from The Exorcist is is uh, source music that William Friedkin chose, but there there are a few original cues that he composed for that as well. So uh, Nietzsche was also an Oscar winner. He wrote the um, the he co-wrote Up Where We Belong for uh, Joe Cocker oh, and right. and um, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Warren. Warren's. There we go. Yep, yep. He sure did. So uh, yeah, he he was. Uh, I think he was involved. I think he was in a relationship with Carrie Snodgrass at one point too. He, he's an interesting guy, but died fairly young of a heart attack. Um, anyway, I'm getting way off topic, but we have an <laughs> audio, as I tend to do. Uh, uh, audio commentary by Paul Schrader on this new edition. This was previously issued by Twilight Time. I have the the old uh, Twilight Time, which is fine for me. 
Um, this one has a new commentary by Eddie Friedfeld, Lee Pfeiffer, and Paul Scrabo, and the trailer. So uh, you do get a few new extras there, but yeah, I have, have the old uh, Twilight Time that's way out of print. So anyway, we have Monk, the complete first season, all 13 season one episodes, newly restored in 4K. Uh, I have watched uh, Monk, you know, on and off, but not religiously. I probably should watch it more of it. Uh, I've always liked what I saw, but I never, um, never did see the entire series, and I should. So, uh, but you get um, all uh, 13 season one episodes newly restored, and you get some uh, some featurettes. Uh, mostly featurettes here are the um, or what are the extras that you get. And then we'll move on to three day, three days of the Condor, directed by Sidney Pollack from 1975. First time ever in 4K Ultra HD, and this is a classic conspiracy thriller. I think it's pinned by William Goldman, I believe. I think so. I think it was. Um, and, you know, starring Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, Max Boncito, and he's uh, Robert Redford is an agent who's uh, uh, attempting not to be killed by people who want him dead. And he has a romance there with Faye Dunaway, which some people say is a little uh, – doesn't fit in. Yeah, the I, the I had comments about this film. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. Let's hear I just watched it again. I think the first 20 minutes of this film are brilliant, mm -hmm. and it really sets the whole stage for what this is going to be. Like the field office gets wiped out, and Robert Redford out to lunch is the only one who survives that. But then – then things get weird. Okay, the whole office is wiped out. Then things get weird. Um, so there are a lot of things that give me pause after that. I still think it's a great movie, but one of the hard things is that there's a lot of World Trade Center shots in it. So oh, that yeah. for all of us, you know, takes us back, which is, mm -hmm. which is hard to do. And there are small things like Robert Redford – is re his character is really well read in this movie that's what his job is to read everything so he knows about codes engraved in keys but he doesn't know the area code of Washington DC you know like okay yeah <laughs> sure good point and and Faye Dunaway's character initially very hostile and understandably frightened by him but then she sleeps with him the same night. So it's but then you think, okay, it's Robert Redford, so if you're gonna do that with anybody, okay, I'll let that one have a free pass. Um it's so I have a ten word review for this as well. Um Dazzling Opening sets increasingly paranoid series of events in motion. Very good. That's a great summation. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> very, very good. Yeah, it's um No, you know, this is not written by William Goldman. This is written by um uh the uh, Lorenzo Simple Jr., I believe. Oh, right, right. I think I think I'm wrong about that. So I wanted to correct myself. Yeah. Well, now so you're right. You were wrong. Now you're right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny cuz Lorenzo Simple, everybody thinks him as of him as the king of camp because he wrote the uh, 76 King Kong and the Batman television series and Flash Gordon, but he could turn in some some less campy uh, stuff, and Three Days of the Condor is one of those examples. I think he you – know, there's a couple of other examples you could cite. Uh, maybe – I want to say he did Parallax View also, but maybe 
me. I can't. I, I I don't know right off the bat. But anyway, you get a documentary here about Sidney Pollack, 59-minute documentary that I've always wanted to see, and I guess I'll still want to see it because I didn't get the disc. <laughs> so uh, it's 59 minutes long, as I said. Uh, more about the Condor, a 2003 featurette that runs about 25 minutes. And you get a new commentary here by uh, Steve Mitchell and Nathaniel Thompson and the archival commentary by the late, great Sidney Pollack. So there you go. This next one you can tell, you can talk a little bit, of, uh, speak to a little bit, I think. Uh, Staying Alive, 1983. <laughs> <laughs> Staying Alive. <laughs> infamous sequel to Saturday Night Fever getting a first ever 4K Ultra HD release. I'm I'm not even sure using the words guilty pleasure for this movie would be like the right verbiage. Um it's not good but it's immensely watchable. You know, it's <laughs> So it, it, you have Stallone walking down the street bumping into John Travolta, you know, just these moments that are just like, oh, I like that. Um, one of Finola Hughes' early performances, she's a phenomenal dancer, but her acting is like, eh. um, <laughs> yeah. and she, she got so much better on General Hospital, five daytime Emmy nominations. She became a great actress, but in this, not so much. I really, I've seen this many times. I really enjoy not liking this movie i guess is the best way to phrase it <laughs> oh that's too funny do you have a uh 10 word review for this one i'm curious uh no i have not done a tenor on this yet but it's i should put that on the to-do list oh you got it you got it yeah mm-hmm. absolutely well you know it's funny because a lot of people think of this film as a failure it was not actually it, i mean obviously it didn't make the kind of money that saturday night fever did did and it didn't have that kind of cultural resonance either but it did pretty well uh, paramount had previously released that year Flashdance, and between Flashdance and staying alive it did pretty well and there's also a top 10 single from the soundtrack of right. that film by uh frank uh, stallone right far <laughs> from over so uh there is that and i believe there's a top 30 from uh the bgs uh the woman in you i believe got to number 29 or something like that i believe and so, I, uh, I think the Cynthia Rhodes duet was like on the adult contemporary charts. I think you're right. That's good point. Good point. Yeah. So so there's all of that. Cynthia Rhodes would go on to marry um, Richard Marks, I believe, right? Uh, Correct. Yeah. yeah. For a while. Not and anymore, of course, but. she was in Dirty Dancing, which everybody knows that dancing movie. <laughs> yes. Of course. Well, if you were a fan of Staying Alive, and Staying Alive has an interesting history on home video, obviously VHS and DVD releases, but never a Blu-ray release, ever, uh, domestically anyway. And it just made the leap to 4K Ultra HD, skipped Blu-ray altogether, and it has been uh, – there's a new HDR Vision – Dolby Vision Master from a 4K scan of the original negative, courtesy of Paramount Pictures. Uh, new commentary by David Del Val and Ed King. And it, this is uh, pressed on a 100 uh, UHD 100 disc. And for just to get a little technical, get a little geeky with the tech stuff here, uh, the bigger the disc, the more, the higher the bit rate, and the better the picture. So uh, a 100 disc is about the, the maximum size that you can get uh, in terms of um, the, uh, the the bandwidth on the disc. And so this should be a stunning transfer. If you're a fan of this, I would say, 
Can I can I just add that making the leap is the perfect words to use because <laughs> John Travolta literally has to making a leap is part of this story. He has to do this huge jump and it's so perfect. Well done, Adam. <laughs> I didn't even know that I was doing that and I'm glad you pointed it out. This is true. This is true. Yeah, this uh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like it's technically, you know, as far as the uh, the um, critical merits of the film, I'm with you on that. It's it's somewhat of a guilty pleasure. Saturday Night Fever is a terrific film, one of my all time favorites, and I've often said that if I could be a, a if I could be a character in real life from any film I've ever seen, it would probably be Tony Manero because I love to dance. I'm a big dancing type of guy and the kind of dancing he does is what i'm that's all i'm all about that and so i just would love to be able to live that life for a brief i, I think it would get old but you know <laughs> for a little while it would be fun uh but yeah and we also have to mention julie bavasso returns in this as well as his mom right so right remember that so yeah and uh kurtwood smith just a couple of years before his turn in robocop also turning up in this <laughs> So, yeah, um, and you also get a, uh, let's see, you get a um, home video preview trailer that was originally on the VHS tapes, I think, and four TV spots. And speaking of Fanola Hughes, a new interview with Fanola Hughes. Yeah. Uh, there you get it on there. So uh, Staying Alive being issued uh, again from Kino, and we're down to the last of the Kinos, and you have an anecdotal story that will tie right into this one, Malone. Uh, starring Burt Reynolds from 1987 and starring Cliff Robertson, who's also in our previously mentioned Three Days of the Condor. But uh, you've got Lauren Hutton, Scott Wilson, Cynthia Gibb, uh, Kenneth McMillan. These are great. Uh, this is a great cast in this uh, Malone from 1987. He's an ex-cop, ex-CIA um, Looking to leave his past behind and start a new life in the Pacific Northwest, but his dreams of living the quiet life soon go up in smoke when he stumbles onto a military conspiracy led by a local millionaire played by Cliff Roberts. And you get a new commentary by Steve Mitchell and Nathaniel Thompson in a theatrical trailer. I never saw this film. I remember when it came out. It was at a low point for Burt Reynolds' career. It was before Evening Shade, but after... He had kind of torpedoed his career, I don't know, some people say purposely, with <laughs> uh, Stroker Ace and uh, City Heat wasn't much better. And so there were some uh, low points in the career of Burt Reynolds around this time. So, um, And there was Stick. Yeah, that was the other one that he did in 1985, which he directed that one, but again, got pretty bad notices. And Malone is, is another one of those that, but, you know, there are fans. I know my previous co-host on Movie Geeks United was a big fan of uh, Malone. So, But anyway, you have a story. I'll let you tell it uh, oh. related to Burt Reynolds. Okay, I have a tangentially related story to Burt Reynolds. Um, the person who got Burt Reynolds into acting went, after he got injured playing football for Florida State was a man named Watson B. Duncan III, an amazing professor, just inspirational like he's the kind of guy who can speak in hushed tones and still have a room of 300 people enraptured that's how great he was so he was Burt Reynolds professor and he said you know Burt Reynolds was at a low point he was feeling really low what am I going to do with my life and Watson B. Duncan III got him into acting which 
is and he he's credited him for this in you know at award shows in his biography this is not new material but Watson B. Duncan III was also my professor and I got to interview him the year he won another of his Teacher of the Year awards because he used to just rack them up and they named the auditorium after him at Palm Beach Junior College and everything but I interviewed him about how he got Burt Reynolds into acting and just the most amazing professor. And I'm, it's a great like um, thing to have in common with Burt Reynolds, I'd say. Oh, that's fantastic. That is, that is a good story. That's very interesting. I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, because it's, it's amazing. You know, we, we tended to, well, I don't know if people do it as much as we used to, but you know, we, we put these people up on a pedestal, but they're just people, you know, and they have to, come from somewhere and so that kind of humanizes them in a way when you meet somebody who was uh, pivotal in their definitely years so yeah i think that is a a good story a very interesting well we were when we when movie geeks was going uh we were able to we had tried to get him on their burt riddles on our show for years and years and years and just weren't having any luck and then finally lo and behold he just said yes he was promoting, I think, the last movie star or something. That one of those. Oh, that I final love film that movie. That yeah, was a too. really good movie. It was. It was a good swan song for him, and uh, so he came on in the fall of 2017. And one of my colleagues on the show interviewed him, and I thought he did a pretty good job. He was. Uh, we didn't know what to expect because he's known to be mercurial at best, <laughs> and uh, so you didn't know what you were going to get. He could be a little surly at times, but he was completely. Uh, uh, he, well, he had told us, I think, 30 minutes, and we said, okay, we'll take whatever we can get, and he went on for nearly 90, I think. He was having such a good time. Oh, that's and, uh Yeah, and he was apologetic for some of the things that he had, you know, for the the stuff he had said about Paul Thomas Anderson and Boogie Nights, and I think they came to blows during the making of uh, fist, you know, Fisticuffs during the making of Boogie Nights. I think it was pretty pretty bad, and he apologized for that in our interview that he did with us, and so he was, uh, you know, he seemed to be a little humbled by, I don't know, by age and time and life. I don't know. But um, it was and it turned out to be one of his final interviews. Uh, I don't think he did any. He died just a year after that. So, yeah. So we were lucky that we got him on there just uh, before it was too late. And so you just never know about these people. People uh, right. are getting up there. So, yeah, well, that are those that covers all of the keynote titles that we had. And uh, so we'll get to the criterion stuff right quick and then we'll get to the uh, the regular uh, chronological titles and we'll try to run through these real quick. The criterions, there was a, a box set called uh, Dim Sum. Uh, well, actually, it's Bo, Wide Bo Weiderberg's New Swedish Cinema. Cinema is the box set I was referring to. Sorry about that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. It was a collection of this um Bo Weiderberg is a Swedish director and he did some some western films in the 60s and I think the uh, the films in included here are The Baby Carriage Raven's End Elvira Madigan uh, Adeline 31 and so all of those those four films are included in the set and you get new restorations new introduction to Bo Weiderberg by the filmmaker Ruben Osland Boy in the Kite is a short film that he made. It's also included here, and uh, Swedish TV interviews with him from the 60s and behind-the-scenes footage, essay book. So uh, Bo Weiderberg's new Swedish cinema, 
Uh, Dim Sum, A Little Bit of Heart, is a uh, film from Wayne Wang. His follow-up to his debut film, Chan is Missing, which was a an indie indie film that made quite a splash in 1982. I I can't say it really. I, I tried I, – it was so well-reviewed, and I, I saw it a couple of years ago when Criterion issued it on Blu-ray, and I just – it was a little bit of a chore for me to get through. Uh, I appreciated what he was trying to do, but – Nevertheless, his follow-up film, Dim Sum, is, uh, has been issued on Blu-ray, and it includes a new conversation between Wayne Wang and film scholar Arthur Dong, interview from 2004 with Lauren Chu, and the uh, English subtitle translation, a new one there on this. You get um, – we also have Dry Long's Go – Dry Long's O, I'm sorry, Rediscovered Treasure of 1990s Do-It-Yourself Filmmaking, Colleen Smith's Dry Longzo embeds an incisive look at racial injustice with a lovingly handmade buddy movie murder mystery romance. And so uh, that's what it was billed as. I didn't get a review copy of this one either, although I'm aware of the title. And you get a, a new conversation between the uh, the filmmaker there and uh, scholar, film scholar Michael B. Gillespie, short films and trailer. And then lastly, but not least, is one of the final films from Akira Kurosawa, Dreams, which also features an appearance uh, in an acting role by Martin Scorsese, who also was uh, one of the uh, producers of this film, I believe. It's one of the final films of Kurosawa, uh, 1990. It's based on some dreams that he had had over the years, and it's his interpretation of these in a, on a cinematic uh, in a cinematic way. Uh, it has previously been issued on Blu-ray, now getting a 4K Ultra HD release for the first time ever. And it doesn't have any new bonus features, uh, just the Blu-ray bonus features being carried over, which include a feature-length documentary on the making of the film from 1990 and another documentary from 2011 by his longtime translator. Um, so uh, that covers all of the Criterion releases. And we'll get on with the uh, other titles, as it were. And, oh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, that was a Disney release, uh, 4K and Blu-ray on that. Uh, if you're a fan of those type of things, you know who you are. I didn't see it. Can't really comment. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, I don't think anything you or I say about Guardians of the Galaxy is going to... Yes, we're not going to change anybody's mind about anything. (laughs) Exactly. So we'll just leave it right there. Ferris Bueller's Day Off getting a first ever 4K release, courtesy of Paramount. And I know you can talk about this one a little bit. Actually, I have something to bring up. Um, Sure. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Do you know not everybody loves this movie? Not everybody likes this movie. Right. I, I used to work with somebody who really detested it, and his point being Ferris is always disobeying authority, breaking laws, and, and whatnot while he's having a good time. I, I get that, but it's like escape. As, you know, when we were kids, we couldn't do anything against authority, not against teachers, not against principals, not against anybody. Ferris Bueller sort of did that for us, and so that's why I think the majority of the world does love it. But I was, like, amazed the first time I heard someone say, I don't like this movie. (laughs) Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, when they had Matthew Broderick on the um, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast, the first thing out of Gilbert's mouth was, I really don't like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, Matthew Broderick was kind of taken aback. He's like, oh, oh. 
<laughs> I, it, yeah, you don't expect to hear it, I guess, because you're just so used to the love. But yeah, I can give you some sibling cinema 10-word reviews if you want. Absolutely. Let's hear it. Okay, well, Leia's, she sort of combined hers with her War Games one, so you have to think in that vein when I read this one to you. Okay, hers was extreme results of career-focused realtor moms neglecting delinquent computer-obsessed sons. So I think she, she nailed it there. And mine was, oh, yeah, we Camerons need a little Ferris more now. <laughs> I like how you get the uh, the yellow. Oh yeah! In oh yeah! <laughs> very clever, very clever. Yeah, that uh, that song had been previously issued, I think, and kind of come and gone, and it came back and was released as a single. I think it charted here in, in the states. So, uh, from what I remember, uh, I know I bought it. Whether it charted or not, I can't remember. I don't have my <laughs> chart book with me, but I think I had the 12 uh, inch vinyl single of that. I must say, so, nice. So I believe I did. Yeah, uh, so this is a great-looking transfer of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I put it up on my projector, and I looked at it a couple of weeks ago. And I must say they did a really good job. Uh, you know, it's tricky with the 4K stuff. You Sometimes they leave too much grain in. Uh, I haven't looked at Weird Science yet, but I, my son actually got a, a copy of that. He bought a copy of Weird Science, and he said it's really – the grain is structure is kind of clunky on that. And so it's almost a little too much too film-like uh, and so they you know it's tricky getting these transfers just right but i think they did a really good job with ferris bueller's day because there's enough grain there get it has a little bit of a you know a film-like appearance but not to the point where it's distracting and so um and all these extras have been previously issued you get uh getting the class together the cast of ferris bueller's day off the making of ferris bueller's day off who is ferris bueller the world according to ben stein the vintage ferris bueller lost tapes uh, but the, uh, the the interesting thing here is the commentary with director John Hughes. Now, that had been basically removed from all editions and reissues of Ferris Bueller uh, per John Hughes' wishes. Because he recorded that in the 1990s, and I believe in 96 for the 10th anniversary, the a Pioneer did a special edition laser disc. And so he recorded that, and it's the only commentary that John Hughes ever did for any of his films. He notoriously didn't talk very much about his films or his creative process, just very little. And so it's fascinating to hear him actually talk about, uh, you know, the decisions that went into making the film. It's a pretty good commentary, uh, but I don't know why he didn't like it, but he just – he was uh, speaking uh, – using the word mercurial, that seems to be the word of the day uh, <laughs> uh, here. But he was another. I've spoken to Paul Hirsch who edited this film, and he edited two of John Hughes's films, and he told me that he could just – you never knew what to expect. You would go into work one day, and you're just laughing hysterically with him, and the next day he wasn't, he wasn't speaking to you, and you don't know why. Uh, it's like, well, what did I do? And he's not going to tell you. You just have to figure it out. So right. he was one of those people, and there are people like that. I try to be even keeled. You you know what you're going to get from me, no matter what the day is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, but some people are like that, and those people, being around those kind of people are, is can be very difficult. And so, uh, and he was one of those, apparently. And so he recorded the commentary, liked it, and then he suddenly didn't like it. Uh, but now his wife has passed on as well, and so it's the kids who are handling the estate of John Hughes, and they have said, basically, you can have that commentary. You can put it on your new 4K disc. So they did. <laughs> nice. 
Yeah, and they also let 75 minutes of the deleted scenes from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, they they were they allowed those to be on the 4K release of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles from last fall. And those are uh, that was originally a three-hour film. Paul Hurst told me when I interviewed him. Wow. Uh, yeah, and he said they they trimmed it down to 90 minutes. So there was literally another a whole other movie that we never got to see from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And there are some pretty funny scenes. A lot of the stuff you see on there, I watched them all, and a lot of the stuff you see there, it's like, yeah, I see why they got rid of that. But there are a couple of things. It's like, yeah, you could have left that in. That's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> so you just, you never know. But yeah, I think the rap on Ferris Bueller, though, the people who don't like it, like you were saying, I think the rap on that is that they find the character insufferable to a certain degree because he's just kind of smug and, you know, I yeah, like it. I think it's a great movie, but some people just don't see it that way. They just don't like his character, and that was always my problem with Home Alone, speaking of John Hughes. I just always hated the character of Kevin. I felt like he was insufferable and deserved to be kidnapped uh, because he was just <laughs> such a smart-mouthed little brat. And just, I, I just didn't like him. I didn't relate to him at all, and I know I'm in the minority on that. So Home Alone is, I guess – I'm in the minority on not liking that, nor have I ever. So, And I've tried. I've seen it several times and just doesn't do it for me. But anyway, we'll move on. So uh, <laughs> uh, moving along to Rio Bravo being issued by Warner Brothers. They're still celebrating their 100-year anniversary. And they've been doing, generally speaking, about one title a month from there. Uh, they're doing The Exorcist here in the month of September. It's, I haven't got my copy yet, but it should be here any day. Uh, Rio Bravo was one of their – they actually did three titles in the month of August, and Rio Bravo was one of them. Uh, this is, of course, John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, and the plot was later repurposed for Assault on Precinct 13, directed by John Carpenter, which was his first feature film. You actually get the commentary here by John Carpenter and Richard Schickel. This was uh, a big, big uh, favorite of John Carpenter's, obviously. And he actually, I think the screenwriting credit in Assault from Precinct 13 is actually taken from one of the from the character that John Wayne plays in the film, John T. Chance. Is uh, so when you, you see the the uh, John Carpenter film, that's that's he actually gives that use that moniker as the uh, screenwriter, as it were. So anyway, Rio Bravo is a very relaxed film for anybody who's not seen it. It's two hours twenty minutes, directed by Howard Hawks. It takes its time getting where it's going. Also worth mentioning that it's co-written by Lee Brackett, who wrote The Empire Strikes Back, or co-wrote The Empire Strikes Back. So that, that's another uh, thing to talk about here as well. And a great score by Dimitri Tiomkin, who is an, uh, an excellent composer from the uh, that time period. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a, it reminds you of a Tarantino film, and Tarantino has always said that he loved Rio Bravo as well. And you can see... Uh, yeah, he uses that structure in a lot of his films because it doesn't get in a hurry going where it's going. It's not so much about the plot. It's about hanging out with the characters. And Walter Brennan is really funny. He kind of brings comic relief to the, the film as well, and he's terrific. And Angie Dickinson is the female interest in the film. And uh, it's just – it's a really good movie. It just doesn't get in a hurry going where it's going. And you need to know that going in, that it's kind of a hangout movie as they call it. So, uh, But if you haven't seen Rio Bravo, I would say uh, – uh, pick it up uh, or watch it, stream it, whatever. It's worth your time um, because it's a good movie. And, um, so, yeah. Another of the Warner Archive titles would be 
East of Eden, starring uh, James Dean, of course, and uh, one of the three films that James Dean made in his short life, uh, short, brief career. Um, Giant was released, I believe, last year or the year before that in 4K, and this year we got Rebel Without a Cause back in April, and we have this one now. East of Eden, a lot of people, the rap on East of Eden has been that uh, it won, it was nominated for Best Picture, but it lost to Marty, starring Ernest Borgnine, and a lot of people say, you know, well, it should have won because it's a superior film to Marty, and it's just, you know, it's John Steinbeck, and this, that, and the other, and uh, I am a big fan of Marty. I still think Marty deservedly won. It's the little film that could. It's a sweet, sweet little film. Borgnine is terrific. I like East of Eden, but I just don't think it's quite as good as, or relatable as, uh, as Marty, but I will wasn't, say... Wasn't yeah. it on the waterfront that year, too? I think that was the year before, actually. Oh, the year before. Yeah, 54, yeah, I believe it was 54. I can't remember all what all was up for Best Picture in 55, but I do know Marty and East of Eden were two of them. And, uh, but yeah, you're close. You're very close. Well, I'm, rem- um, I'm remembering from Quiz Show some kind of on-the-waterfront Marty thing. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember that uh, what that what that was, but I know, uh, yeah, that does come up in there. You're right. You're right. Um, Ilya Kazan, of course, the the uh, who named names. You know, his career kind of went down after this when he during the House on American Activities hearings, and so his name was mud for calling out communists. You know, this was right before all that went down. I think so. Um, but his career was riding high. Um, I think he he did have a couple more successes. Speaking of, yeah, he also directed on the waterfront. That there you go, same director. That's it. We're <laughs> yeah. tying it in. I just okay. it just came up. That's yes, it. good job. There is a tie in there. Yeah, and he also of course did a face in the crowd with Andy Griffith. Absolutely terrific film, by the way, and incredibly prescient. Uh, just uh, amazing. If you haven't seen a face in the crowd, just uh, I can't run run to get that one. So. <laughs> It's amazing how uh, topical it is, even though it's nearly 70 years old. Um, so, yeah, but you only get the commentary by Richard Chickle here on this East of Eden, uh, but a terrific transfer, I will say. And so uh, we will. Uh, that's enough said about East of Eden. But it's basically, you know, as I said, John Steinbeck novel, and James Dean just wants to craves the love of his father, played by Raymond Massey, so much, and he just can't seem to get it. And that's essentially the plot of the film. Um Enter the Dragon is the other, the third of the Warner Warner Brothers titles being released in 4K Ultra HD. And I don't know if you've ever seen Enter the Dragon, but I will say that I made the uh, terrible mistake of having watched Kentucky Fried Movie first. (laughs) And it features this parody of Enter the Dragon right in the middle of the movie <laughs> called A Fistful of Yen, and once you've seen that, there's no going back, folks, I'll tell you, because you can't take this film seriously. You're in, I mean, and they parody everything in that Kentucky Fried movie segment from this film. The just complete scenes are redone uh, to the point where you just, like I said, it, had I seen this film first, I probably would have enjoyed it, but having seen it after that it's it's really hard for me to enjoy this. I, I appreciate Bruce Lee's physicality and his stunts are amazing. Uh, John Saxon is good, you know, also always he is. And, um, you know, uh, but uh, it's just, 
I, I don't know. It's 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 a tough one to to watch and take seriously. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> it's sort of like to tie in some uh, some other thing we talked about already. If you saw airplanes disco scene before Saturday Night Fever, <laughs> like it would. Where... Terrific, terrific analogy. Yes, absolutely. It's right there, right there with it. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, Enter the Dragon is a uh, is a tough one to to watch after you've seen that. And so anyway, don't see the parodies first, ladies and gentlemen. I guess that's what we're trying to say. We're yes. giving you advice. So we'll we'll move on. Nightbreed has been issued by Scream Factory in a collector's edition, which includes the director's cut on Blu-ray. I don't think they had the original negatives available for a 4K on that, but they do have a 4K of the theatrical cut, Blu-ray of the director's cut, and all of the previous extras have been ported over as well. I never saw Nightbreed. I know that's a Clive Barker film. Um, always been kind of curious about it. But I hear the director's cut's pretty good. But the theatrical cut, he was never happy with it. It was compromised, and so there you go. Um, well, Leia has a 10-word review if you would like it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. Um, murderous shrink framing patient isn't the weirdest part of story. <laughs> well, I have been warned. <laughs> Consider me We've warned. all been warned, yes. Yes. One of these days. I didn't get a review copy of this, so I can't really speak to its quality, but – uh, anyway, um, so we have Two Guns starring Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg getting a 4K release. I saw this theatrically. I thought it was okay. I, it was kind of forgettable, kind of vaporized right after you uh, left the theater. So um, didn't didn't uh, didn't didn't get a review copy on this one either. But uh, I, I I'm not crying about that. I don't think I <laughs> would want to sit through it again. Cinderella has been issued in 4K from 1950, the original animated classic. And Beauty and the Beast has been issued as well in 4K. And Frozen, these are all getting new uh, steelbook editions, too. So if you collect steelbooks, you know, there, there's that. So um, anyway, Force of Evil is a Kino title, a crime thriller starring John Garfield. I don't think I mentioned this one earlier. Somehow I missed that when I was talking about um, uh, the Kino titles, and so I wanted to mention that one. That's a Kino that I overlooked for some reason. Uh, Invaluable is a documentary on Tom Sullivan, the uh, makeup artist who did the makeup effects for the original Evil Dead in 1981, I guess it were. And it's billed as uh, the true story of an epic artist. And uh, this is getting really good reviews. I still haven't gotten a chance to open mine up and watch it. Uh, it's uh, being issued by Synapse Films and uh, edited and directed by Ryan Mead. And you get some uh, some bonus materials here, bonus documentary about the life of filmmaker Josh Becker and an In the Spotlight interview with Tom Sullivan from 1989 and a few other featurettes. Uh, it's his work on The Evil Dead was pretty amazing, I have to admit. The original 1981 Sam Raimi film debut. Um, so, you know, this is probably good stuff, I would say. But invaluable, the true story of an epic artist from Synapse. So we'll move along here to August 4th. Razorback being issued in 4K. This is uh, the, uh, the, uh, the pig, the Australian pig that's uh, killing people, I think, uh, starring Gregory Harrison, I believe. <laughs> You probably remember at least seeing it in the video store at some point. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Really? Okay. It's about a wild, vicious pig terrorizing the Australian outback. 
and the first victim's a small child who's killed. And so an American TV journalist uh, is uh, the next victim, and her husband uh, starts to search for the truth. It's directed by Russell Mulcahy, who would later uh, go on to do um, – oh, uh, uh, he was a music video director, obviously. Highlander, Highlander, yeah. Uh, that's what he would go on to do. But he, he cut his teeth doing those Duran Duran videos, and so – it was kind of a big deal at the time, I remember, because they said Russell Mulcahy's making his film debut about this uh, ter- this pig that's terrorizing the Australian outback. But but it never uh, didn't do much in America. I don't know what kind of box office results it had, but it's, it was filmed in Australia, I believe. But anyway, Umbrella Entertainment putting this one out in 4K. I've never seen it, so I can't vouch for it. But anyway, there's a new document. Speaking of Duran Duran, there's a new documentary about their uh, concert they did out in Hollywood last year called A Hollywood High. So that has been uh, issued on Blu-ray. And then we move along to August 8th with Swamp Thing. I know you can maybe talk about this one uh, being issued in 4K from MVD. Well, I can give you a 10-word review from Leia. That's okay. what I do. Okay, here we go. Uh one little kiss, and she has a protector for life. <laughs> That's true. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, this one turned up on cable quite a bit when I was uh, growing up. And I I remember when it came out, it came out in theaters when I was in sixth grade, and I wanted to see it and uh, was curious. I knew who Wes Craven was even when I was in sixth grade because he had done, I think at that point, The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, I had not seen any of his films except, except Deadly Blessing. We I saw that on cable, I think. But um, anyway, I knew it was a PG-rated Swamp Thing. It was a PG-rated Wes Craven film, which was not like him because I think everything he had done up to that point was was hard R. Right. And so this was the family-friendly Wes Craven. I remember I, I was a regular <laughs> regular reader of Fangoria magazine, and this was mentioned in there. And so, uh, but I didn't see it theatrically. But then when it turned up on cable, I saw it quite a bit. Um, the big deal about this new 4K edition of it was when it was first released on DVD by MGM in the oh, around 2000 or something, something like that, 98, 99, maybe, yeah, I would say around 2000, they accidentally put out the unrated international cut, uh, and they Ooh. billed it as the PG theatrical cut. Well, the problem here is that Adrian Barbeau is topless in the international cut. Yes. <laughs> so kids were popping this thing in and the parents <laughs> thought it was kid friendly and and, they and were things thinking, were popping out uh, yes. they were indeed yes well quickly mgm withdrew this of that version and they put out the proper pg version and apologized profusely but the thing is that the unrated cut became incredibly valuable on the collector's market and so for years and years it was going for a couple hundred dollars if you had that dvd and now it has been included in this new 4K edition from MV, MVD Rewind, as part of the MVD Rewind collection. And it, uh, you get uh, an audio commentary with Wes Craven moderated by Sean Clark on the PG version. And you get an audio commentary with the makeup effects people. Uh, and you get uh, Tales from the Swamp with actress Adrienne Barbeau. She was um, married to John Carpenter at the time this film was Made and it was filmed not far from where I live. I'm in the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina area. It was in filmed in South Carolina in the swamps there, therein. So anyway, uh, you get this. Uh, it's uh, you get a Blu-ray as a bonus too. So you get the the 4K and the Blu-ray of Swamp Thing. Just want to talk about that and 
Oh, let's see. Fast X. Uh, I didn't see this one either. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't either. <laughs> nope. No, I uh, I think I'm done with Fast and the Furious. Uh, I've seen a couple of them, but I, I think I've reached the point of no return on those. Uh, nevertheless, it has been issued in a collector's edition with uh, being billed as over an hour of bonus features, including scene breakdowns with the director. And um, so I think the last one before this is with the one where they went to the moon or something. And so, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh. Well, you know, you got you, there's an audience there, I guess, but nevertheless. Um, so uh, we have the gate and the mist. I think those are being issued. Let's see, the mist is uh, actually a Walmart exclusive, but being issued by Lionsgate, and you're getting uh, it's two cuts of the film. You get the black and white and the color version. This is uh, Frank Darabont's The Mist. And then you get The Gate. I think that may be another Lionsgate Walmart exclusive. It is from 1987, so Walmart getting in the uh, collector's game there. And you get a Smokey and the Bandit 3 movie collection, all three of them on uh, Blu-ray together in one set. Um, I'm a big fan of the original Smokey and the Bandit. I don't know about 2 and 3. I don't know if it's worth your... <laughs> well... I have ten word reviews from both of us on all three of these movies. Oh well, please, please <laughs> grace us with those reviews. We want to okay. Go. So the 1977 original movie. Here's Les. Uh -huh. Charming chase car driver picks up bride hitchhiker. Wackiness ensues. And then mine for that one was for better and worse. This put Reynolds in fast lane. <laughs> okay, so Smoking in the Bandit 2 19, from 1980, Leia said, the sequel has more heart, less logic than the original. <laughs> and I said, like Charlotte, I haven't forgotten misplaced affection for silly sequel. Uh, Charlotte was the elephant in the movie, just to sort of it, the explain the haven't forgotten portion of the 10 word review there that that movie was on hbo a lot and i think it's why we saw it so much and and retained some affection for it. all the movies you saw as kids on hbo are movies you like you <laughs> like um and part three from 1983 Leia's was hollywood desperately crying out for a decent father-son movie <laughs> and mine was, even Gleason can't save something stupider than Buford T's son. <laughs> so that's your Smokey and the Bandit three-pack from Sibling Cinema. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, uh, you were talking about Charlotte, the uh, the elephant that they're transporting in the second film. I just remember that, that the Statler brothers had a huge hit called Charlotte's Web. That was written specifically for that film for that. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the things we remember. And then the third one, the only thing I remember is the uh, – uh, there's a scene where the – I think it's um, uh, Jackie Gleason and his son, and the car just completely stops on the railroad track or something, and he says, uh, what's the problem, Daddy? And he says, uh, gas. And he said, must have been that pizza gate for lunch, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> because no, the tank. I forgot to fill up the tank. <laughs> Lowbrow humor at its finest. Indeed. Yeah. So, anyway, subtle it ain't. 
as they say. Well, anyway, go tell the Spartans starring Burt Lancaster. Um, Burt Lancaster is a U.S. major who reluctantly obeys an ill-advised order to send a detachment of South Vietnamese troops and American advisors to a former French outpost that's been peaceful for years. It stars Craig Wasson in an early role. Uh, it may have been one of the first. This is before Ghost Story and Four Friends and Body Double, some of the later ones that he would do. Um, I found it to be a little bit of a had a TV movie vibe to it. It's it's vaguely interesting, but it's a little slowly paced. Burt Lancaster's good in it. Uh, it came out at, at a time when there were a lot of uh, Vietnam War films. I think there were like a total of five that came out that year. There's Coming Home and The Deer Hunter and uh, uh, Boys in Company C, Go Tell the Spartans, and um, what was the other one? Seems there's a fifth one, but I'm I'm drawing a blank. But anyway, there were like five in one year, and this was one of them. So um, anyway, uh, MGM releasing this one. No extras on this one, but uh, it was it was good to see it. I'd always heard about it and heard good things, and I was glad to finally get a chance to watch that one. And so we're moving along, and I know you can talk about this one, Asteroid City, coming from (laughs) uh, who the distributor is on that one. That's Universal, yes. So you take it away. Uh, Well, you know, the funny thing is we were talking earlier about how much we have in common movie-wise, and (laughs) this is where we diverge, Wes Anderson – you're over there, I'm over there. You know, <laughs> totally different opinions on Wes Anderson. I admire his 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 uh, abilities, though. Let me get that clear. I think he is a terrific filmmaker for what he does. It's just some things just aren't for you. You know, it doesn't. It's no reflection of the person's talent. And I would certainly want to make that clear. I think he's a very talented filmmaker. It's just not for me. It's just not for you, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that that's what. Really, all you know, all movies are that they yeah. either they touch you or they don't, and you can't force them to. Like, I never got into ET, which is a whole separate discussion. Yeah. But I understand, you know, you try, you want to like something, and then you just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, Asteroid City was I speaking of things that you want to like but don't, I didn't really love the French Dispatch after loving every single thing that came before it from Wes Anderson. And I was a little concerned, is this it? Is this where the path converges? Am I going down another path now? And when I saw Asteroid, I said, okay, everything's fine now. Um, I Asteroid City is the latest movie in which people try and compare Close Encounters of the Third Kind, one of our favorite movies, to another (laughs) movie. And it just doesn't work. Like, nope, wasn't Close Encounters. And Asteroid City isn't Close Encounters, you know. But people have this need to, like, say things are like other things to sort of draw a picture of what, you know, of what the movie is like. And I understand that. But, again, I don't see it. Um, but I was thrilled with how Asteroid City played. I think it has a lot to say about how we lived um, during the pandemic and post-pandemic and the distance that people have from each other. And I think without saying it, that's what Wes Anderson is talking about a lot in this movie. I just I thought it was beautiful. I love the music in it. The acting, of course, is wonderful. And I have a 10-word review for you. So it is Return 
return to again and again like a favorite travel destination. And I will be happy to be going back to Asteroid City time and again like I did with all the other non-French dispatch Wes Anderson creations. Very good. Well, you sell it well, if nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, my son saw this one. He he follows – he's more of a Wes Anderson fan than I am, and I've – like I said, I I have seen quite a few of his films, not all, but you know I, I've I've admired the uh, the aesthetics of them for sure and his abilities. But like I said, just eh, just sensibilities just don't mesh with mine, and that's that's where it, where it uh, you know where we where we differ. But uh, certainly talented, I would say so. Yep. So even a flawed Wes Anderson is probably worth seeing. Uh, so, you know, we and maybe... if this, if this was a flawed Wes Anderson, it would be worth seeing, but it's a good, it's a solid return mm-hmm. to form for Wes Anderson for, for my purposes. And if you're a fan of Wes's and French dispatch didn't grab you, you you'll be happy to see this rebound. Good to hear. Well, see, I, I knew I would need your, your expertise on a few of these titles that I hadn't seen. So that's, that's one. So. You're bringing it to the plate. <laughs> well, we'll move along to the uh, the 70th anniversary edition of Roman Holiday, starring Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, this was the uh, 1953 film. I think it might have been the one that put her on the map. And it stars um, uh, Gregory Peck as a, a newspaper man that falls in love with her. And she's a uh, she's a modern day princess uh, rebelling against the royal obligations and exploring Rome uh, and. Anyway, a, a delightful little movie that, uh, you know, like showcased her talents early on, directed by William Wyler, and the screenplay was co-written by Dalton Trumbo. I think originally he was blacklisted and his name was not included, but they have rectified that, thankfully. So um, anyway, he got his due. Uh, you get a um, uh, some featurettes here with Leonard Malton uh, discussing it. There's behind-the-scenes stuff uh, a little featurette on audrey hepburn and her time at paramount in the and uh, dalton trumbo and his time at paramount in the 50s so uh and like i said you get the 4k ultra hd upgrade which it's beautiful just to look at so roman holiday from paramount we'll talk about that impulse is an interesting i've always wanted to see this i didn't get a review copy of it but i was uh and you may not have even heard about this but this is a, a film that i've always heard talk of directed by william greffet who also made Stanley, the movie about the man who trained uh, um, snakes to kill people in the early 70s. It was kind of a knockoff of Willard, and uh, he's made several other uh, films. I have a box set of some of his stuff, but this one's not in it. It's called Impulse, starring William Shatner as a leisure suit, paranoid paranoid leisure suit wearing con man gigolo who seduces lonely women and bilks them out of their savings via an investment scam and then kills them. And then, oh, man. Uh, yeah, the daughter of one of his, uh, the women that, uh, of an attractive widow, her daughter, um, becomes suspicious of his motives. And so they say this is pretty interesting that he's, uh, it's good, good cast. William Shatner, of course, so Ruth Roman and, uh, Harold Sakata, I think he was the, uh, um, oh, the, 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 uh, the villain's, uh, henchman and Goldfinger. I'm trying to think of odd job. That's it. Yeah, he's in this, um, James Dobson. So, yeah, uh, I've always wanted to see this. I'm tempted to blind buy this one, to tell you the truth. But Impulse from 1974, starring um, William Shatner and 
it is kind of a legendary horror film that I, I may just have to may have, if it's not too expensive, might just have to <laughs> pull the old proverbial plug on that one. So anyway, uh, Shaw Brothers Classics, Volume 2 from Shop Factory, Lady of Steel, Brothers 5, The Crimson Charm, The Shadow Whip, The Delightful Forest, The Devil's Mirror, Man of Iron, The Water Margin, The Bride from Hell, Heroes 2, The Flying Guillotine, and The Dragon Missile, all released between the years of 1970 and 1976, all in this 1140-minute collection of 12 films. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... uh. They had done some Shaw Brothers stuff. Arrow had put out two collections, and now it looks like uh, Shout has picked up the ball because Arrow stopped putting them out. And so um, I didn't get this one. I didn't get a review copy of it. But uh, if you are a Shaw Brothers uh, fan, which Quentin Tarantino obviously is, he used the logo from Shaw Brothers Films at the beginning of Kill Bill, uh, this this will probably uh, be right up your alley. There's a new uh, Babylon 5, uh, I believe it's an animated film, The Road Home, uh, which just came out in 4K as well. I think that's a Warner Brothers title. Just wanted to mention that one right quick. And then we'll move along. Uh, We're just moving real quick here. We'll try to get these done real fast, what we have left. A couple of, uh, well, actually a TV movie from 1977. We don't see too many TV movies getting issued on Blu-ray, but Fun City Editions is a, a label that's uh, it's a subsidiary of Vinegar Syndrome, and they have put out this 1977 film called The Death of Richie. And since you know TV films like I do, I was wondering if you knew this one starring Ben Gazzara and Eileen Brennan and Robbie Benson. <laughs> I don't know this one, and I'm definitely intrigued by it. Yeah, it's uh, – I remember seeing the, uh, the trailers for this. It's uh, – It's about the 1972 death of George Richard Diener at the hands of his father, who was ultimately not charged with the shooting death of his son. It was an NBC film, and it's based on a nonfiction book by Thomas Thompson. And like I said, Robbie Benson was a uh, uh, hugely popular at the time, and he's in it. Uh, I'm not sure. I think he plays the uh, proverbial Richie of the film's title. Uh, So I don't know. Lance Kerwin, also in this. We recently lost him. He passed earlier this year, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to see these TV movies getting Blu-ray editions, you know. It's it's always good uh, to see that. And um, so, Fun City Edition issuing that one along with another TV movie, Incident at Crestridge, starring Eileen Brennan, again, Directed by Judd Taylor, she's a woman campaigning for and winning election as sheriff in a crusade against the ineptitude and outright corruption of the local law enforcement in a small town in the West. Bruce Davison and Pernell Roberts and Sandy McPeak also in this one. Um, And I believe there's – boy, they're on a TV movie uh, mission, Fun City Editions. They've got another one here. Uh, The Seduction of Gina is another one from 1984 about a uh, recently married and bored – a uh, woman who takes a, a trip to Lake Tahoe and discovers the game of blackjack and becomes obsessed with gambling and keeps hoping her lucky streak will last. And Valerie Bertinelli's in this and Michael Brandon and Ed Lauder. And, uh, so, you know, a couple, uh, couple of TV movies getting a Blu-ray release there from Fun City Editions. That's nice to hear. Awesome. Thank you, Fun City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We love that. We love it. Uh so the Nightmare Before Christmas getting a 4K release. I hear the uh, – I didn't get a review copy of this. I hear that it is spectacular, that the uh, transfer is quite something to behold. 
And so that's a Disney release. Uh, Weird Science. As a, now, were you going to talk about Nightmare Before Christmas? I can't remember if we were going to let you talk about that. No, uh, well, Nightmare Before Christmas, I'm shocked I haven't done a 10-word review of this because it's like my favorite holiday movie. Just that I think of it as if we took all the movies we watched during our childhood, Frosty and Rudolph, and put them in a Tim Burton blender, we would have Nightmare <laughs> Before Christmas. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's uh I like it too. I don't think I've seen it but maybe once since its original release in 93 and that's terrible. I should have done better than that. And I I may pick up this uh 4K if I can get a uh get it at a decent price. I may be willing to make that up make that leap. So uh yeah, for sure. I'm glad they they did that. Uh, Disney has been really slack with their physical media releases. And it looks like there may be some uh, – they may be making some changes with that policy because they're putting out so – I think they're putting out Mandalorian in 4K on disc uh, that's coming pretty soon. And uh, there's a couple of the Marvel series, I believe, that are going to be issued. So they, they seem to be finally moving things onto physical disc. And so uh, this is one of the uh, – maybe maybe a, a sign that they're turning in a different direction, I hope. So, um, But I hear it's really good. They've, they've gone back to the camera negative and – I don't think there's any new extras, but it's you know it's previous extras being reissued uh, on here. The Legend of Zorro 4K, uh, that's a 2005 sequel to The uh, Mask of Zorro. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Antonio Banderas, we shall say. And uh, Hackers, uh, oh, The Legend of Zorro is a Sony release, by the way. Hackers is part of the Shout Select special edition line of titles from Shout Factory. That's uh, been released in 4K. Uh, and that was from 1995, with the infancy of the Internet. And uh, there were a slew of films. I think Johnny Mnemonic was another one that came out around that time or something. And Hackers was one of those. There was a couple of those in the early days of the computer. Uh, the, uh, the the wild, wild world of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the web <laughs> in the early days. Weird Science, as we mentioned earlier, 4K release from Arrow... Um, like I said, I haven't looked at mine yet, uh, but I do hear that there's a lot of green in the picture, although it's an upgrade in detail, picture detail. Uh, and you get all the extras from the previous Arrow edition from a couple of years back. And there's two cuts of the film. There's a, director, an, an, a cut that has a couple of extra scenes that's not in the theatrical version. So anyway, uh, we'll talk about that. I will just mention that right quick. And The Blackening is a recent horror film uh, being getting the 4K and Blu-ray treatment from Lionsgate. And then I'll get you to talk about this one, the moment we've waited for, Coma from Shout Fact uh, Screen Factory rather from 1978, getting a Blu-ray release in a uh, special edition. Yes. All right, Coma, bring on Coma. Um, yes. Thrilled to see it. This is another one of those movies when I was a kid was on HBO all the time, and so. I would watch the HBO East screening and then, you know, three hours later, the <laughs> HBO West screening starts. Um, and it's one of my favorite movies with Jamia Bujol. There's a doctor who finds some wrong goings on at the hospital she's work she works at. And there's some great 
there's great people in it. Michael Douglas plays the girlfriend role. Um, Richard Widmark is the the man in charge who you never know what he's up to. He he comes off simultaneously as good and bad at the same time. And Rip Torn's in it. And Tom Selleck has a um has a little cameo in it. Very important cameo. It's it's a tremendous movie. So the story I wanted to tell about this is that. Brian Fuller, you know, the genius behind Pushing Daisies and Hannibal and Dead Like Me and so many Mm -hmm. more things. In 2019, he posted a photo of Jean-Pierre Bourgeau from this movie, from Coma, on his Twitter. And I responded with how much I love, love, love this movie and long live Susan Wheeler, the main character, even without her appendix. Then he (laughs) responded to me that Coma was one of his first favorite movies as well and that dr susan wheeler is a hero and a genius even without her appendix and then i added i still watch it once a year just to see susan get after it and he just liked the post and it was amazing to just have a brief interaction with someone who's whose own projects mean so much to me, but we have the same base. You know, we both come from the same place and he loved coma and I love coma and everybody who watches it should love coma. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a terrific film, terrific film. And like you said, uh, it has a real feminist uh, agenda on its mind in a good way, in a good way. And uh, we like that. Girl power. uh, Girl power. Absolutely. I'm all with that. So, oh, oh, and and my 10 word review for this was first rate 70s thriller fosters an irrational fear of (laughs) O.R.H. Very good. Yes. Well, yeah, it is a great movie. There's not much I can add there. Uh, Been big fan ever since I first saw it. And, um, you know, it's Michael Crichton doing what he uh, did best. You know, he was he was a, a great novelist, but also a good director as well. So, and he's he uh, and that great Jerry Goldsmith score, which is uh, oh. it's always been interesting because there's not a note of it heard during the first hour of the film, and then suddenly the last yes. hour is where it kicks in. You know, and so uh, powerful, and like a building that is a a bad guy. You know, you're mm-hmm. at the Jefferson Institute. That building is scaring me. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, I think they filmed that at the. Um, the Culver City Studios, I believe, uh, over in uh, uh, what's now, uh, I think Amazon owns that now, I believe, over there in Culver City where MGM used to be. I think that's I think that's where they shot that, in, inside one of those sound stages over there. I, I wondered, uh, I think they had quite a few extras they had to employ to be the hanging corpses there. <laughs> oh, man. That must have been some, yeah, production design earned their paycheck there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think Victor D.A. Kemper was the cinematographer on that. He's still around. He's in his late 90s. He also did uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and National Lampoon's Vacation, I believe. So, yeah. So, anyway, well, we'll move on to Ralph Bakshi's animated film from 1981, American Pop. This is an interesting film. I used to see this one on cable quite a bit when it first came out. It's an R-rated animated film that traces the evolution of pop music. It got pretty good reviews. Um, the soundtrack has uh, music by The Doors, Janis Joplin, Jim, Jimi Hendrix, Mamas and the Papas, Leonard Skinner, Pat Benatar, Lou Reed, Bob Seger, many more. And um, it got, like I said, generally positive reviews. There are no extras on this disc, but uh, it's a terrific uh, 
terrific transfer on this new Blu-ray of American Pop. And it culminates, uh, spoiler alert, culminates in the, uh, the evolution of pop, in the creation of pop music. That's where this all goes during the last segment of the film. But it's dealt with rotoscoping, you know, where they trace real people and then animate them. So it has an interesting style. This is the same director who gave us the, uh, the Mighty Mouse television series in the 80s that was somewhat controversial because of things that were, uh, placed in the little things that he, <laughs> for jokes. That subliminal, he subliminal. Subliminal. There, there you go. Subliminal. You're saying it best. Subliminal, uh, placing of certain things. Uh, yeah. And then you had, um, Fritz the Cat was the other one he did. So yeah, I'll get that out. So, okay. We're, we're winding down. I promise. I promise. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you hurt my feelings is the latest from Nicole Holoff Center. Uh, and it stars uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus as a writer who overhears her husband saying that he doesn't really like her latest novel and thinks it's pretty bad. And so she's trying to figure out if she, she should confront her husband or just let that go and, and this dilemma she has. And, I, you know, I liked um, Enough Said was the other Julia Louise Dreyfus um, co- collaboration she had with Nicole Holof Center. That was really good with um, the late. James Gandolfini from 2013. This was not quite up to the, the level of that. I didn't think I saw it theatrically. It's it's okay. It's fine. Nicole Hall of Center is always interesting, but just not quite as strong as the, the last collaboration those two had. So, But anyway, worth seeing if you like her work, and I do. Uh, the Flash was released in 4K and Blu-ray from Warner Brothers. That was a notorious flop this past summer. Uh, some people say that it's not too bad. Others say that it was... Uh, that it's all over the place tonally. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it, it has been issued. Uh, Bride of Chucky, Seed of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, Cult of Chucky, all being given 4K releases courtesy of Scream Factory. And getting those upgrades. Gorgo from 1961, one of the great giant monster films that I loved as a kid. Uh, getting a 4K release from Vinegar Syndrome, and I hear it's pretty spectacular, the uh, transfer on this. And it's uh, it's an interesting film in that um, it takes place in London, and they, they, they capture this giant creature uh, only to find out that, and even when in, uh, that its mom is on the loose as well, when its mom comes to, uh, to find the... Uh, the, the baby, as it were. And so the but mom and, and child... Uh, wreck havoc on London in this film <laughs> these giant monsters but it's, if you love giant monster films you it's definitely worth your time it's real short too it's only like 80 minutes or something so uh, yeah so um, anyway uh, Vinegar Syndrome speaking of them Killer Condom from 1970 1996 uh, which is uh, uh, some sort of a I'm not even sure what this is about it's <laughs> But I remember seeing it when we did our recent uh, list of films released in 1998. It was only released stateside here in 1998. But um, it's something about a uh, a condom that kills people. I think it's a horror <laughs> parody or something. But anyway, I'm seeing teeth in the, uh, the the photo from it. But anyway, not really sure. Just wanted to mention that Vinegar Syndrome is issuing that. And the uh, recent comedy starring Jennifer Lawrence, No Hard Feelings, getting a a Blu-ray release. I think that's maybe Lionsgate or Sony. Not sure. Hustle and Flow from Paramount getting a 4K upgrade from 2005. And Battlestar Galactica getting... And Hustle and Flow is Paramount, by the way. But Battlestar Galactica is a universal release getting a 4K 
upgrade. This is the theatrical version of the 1978 pilot for the TV show Battlestar Galactica. And so that gets a uh, 4K, 4K upgrade. Uh, the last horror film starring, um, I think that is, uh, Carolyn Monroe and Joe Spinell. It's a uh, horror, it's a, a New York taxi driver stalking a beautiful actress attending the Cannes Film Festival coincides with a series of violent killings of the ladies' friends. I remember seeing this featured prominently in Fangoria magazine back in the day, Severin Films putting this out in the 4K. Um, New Fist of Fury is a, uh, an Asian, uh, film uh it's arrow release i had a press release here in front of me a new a young kung fu master is hired to help protect the local martial arts school when it comes under attack by the japanese and this has um trailer gallery image gallery new feature commentary new video essay and um uh just a fold-out poster is a bonus here as well and then we'll uh, just a couple more things. Uh, I keep saying that, but it, really I am getting to the uh, last. The Life of Emil Zola, which was uh, uh, stars Paul Muni, and it's a uh, dramatization of the uh, uh, well, it's the uh, the Dreyfus Affair, which was um, uh, Zola was the uh, he was the champion of the oppressed who. Relentless campaigned, relentlessly campaigned to free uh, wrongly convicted Captain Dreyfus, uh, played by Joseph Schild Kraut, who later would turn up as uh, Otto von Frank in the Diary of Anne Frank. And this is uh, this is directed by William Deterrell and uh, features a music score by Max Steiner, original uh, classic Warner Brothers shorts. Uh, Mal Hallett and his orchestra in Taking the Count and the Lux Radio Theater broadcast audio only from May 8th of 1939 in the original theatrical trailer. So I think this was, uh, I think this uh, won an Oscar. Yeah, first, um, it was Warner Brothers' first Best Picture Academy Award winner. So a pretty big deal, the life of Emil Zola. So, yes, want to mention that. Uh, Promising Young Woman being issued by Universal. Uh, that was the 2020 revenge thriller starring Carrie Mulligan and my favorite film of that year, actually. I really liked it a lot. And I rewatched it and it holds up. It's really good stuff. Uh, I can't wait for her uh, new film. The uh, director of this, Emerald Fennell, has a new one coming out this year and I'm really curious to see what she does next, to be quite honest. Uh, City of the Living Dead. Uh, this is a Lucio Fulci. He was that uh, Italian horror film director, and uh, you know he did quite a few of these gore fests. And this is another one uh, about a uh, priest who hangs himself and opens the gates of hell inadvertently in the mysterious New England town of Dunwich. Oh, I a... <laughs> hate it when that happens. Duh, don't we all? This is true. Uh, but yeah, City of the Living Dead getting a 4K release. New commentaries by Sam Deegan, Troy Howarth, and Nathaniel Thompson. Um, interviews with some of the stars, Q&A, uh, image gallery, trailer, all kinds of archival extras here. So City of the Living Dead from 1980, and that is a Cauldron Films release. And we have Elizabeth. Now, I think you've seen this one uh, starring Kate Blanchett. Maybe you can speak to this one. I have seen Elizabeth. I think Elizabeth 
Okay. You know how the Academy Awards comes around and you root for your favorites. And you know it's really meaningless if somebody wins or doesn't win because it's like a Hollywood back padding sort of event. I think the maddest I ever got about someone winning and someone not winning was when Kate Blanchett didn't win for Elizabeth, but Gwyneth Paltrow won for Shakespeare in Love. Because <laughs> I thought the difference in performance was like so amazing. Kate Blanchett started this film, Elizabeth, as a naive girl. She ends up as the Queen of England. <laughs> okay. Um, in Shakespeare in Love, Gwyneth plays a woman who not really pulling off being a guy, despite the fact that everybody in the film seems to think she's a guy. Um, <laughs> and I was so perturbed about this. And even the ensuing Oscars that Kate has won has not, like, softened the blow of this. I was really, really mad about it. I think Kate's performance in this is is transformative i mean it it starts in one place and ends completely somewhere else and i just thought it was a performance for all time not just for 1998 awesome yeah that uh yeah it's quite good you're right and uh, i totally agree she she is uh spectacular in this uh role uh what did you think of the sequel or the prequel i guess it was it wasn't i, I thought that was good but that didn't have the kind of range that this did. I mean, it mm -hmm. wasn't taking her from somewhere to somewhere. This is, that was her sort of building on it and she's wonderful and it's interesting. Um, some of the history that may or may not be true aside, it was still interesting and it's great to see her continue on in that role after you've invested, you know, she makes you invest in her in the first film. So by the second film, you're, you're with her, like no matter what she does, good, bad or ugly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. She's uh she she is definitely well cast there, and I want to go back and rewatch this because again, it's another one of these I saw when it first came out, and I just for whatever reason never got around to revisiting, and I need to do that. And uh, this is a Universal release, uh, as is the last one I mentioned, Promising Young Woman. I don't know if I mentioned that it was a Universal release, but both of these getting 4Ks upgrades, and there's a making of Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, featurette, and a commentary with the director on the uh, Elizabeth 4K release. And we'll just uh, run through a couple of these, and we'll be done here. Uh, we have a uh, Gay Perry from 1962, an animated film directed by Chuck, co-directed by Chuck Jones, the uh, legendary Warner Brothers animator. And this uh, stars the vocal talents of Judy Garland and Robert Goulet. And this was a big deal because it was the first time that an A-list talent uh, had loaned their voice to an animated feature film. And Judy Garland was the and and the songs are written by the uh, same. Uh, same team who wrote the songs for The Wizard of Oz, so uh, kind of a reuniting of them, their, of their talents there. Uh, I did not get a review copy of Gay Perry. It always got kind of mixed reviews, and I wasn't sure about it, but now I'm kind of wishing I had requested one because I'd kind of like to see it. So <laughs> I may have to uh, rectify that. But they, they say the uh, transfer is uh, quite splendid, and so uh, it's uh, there are a few cartoon uh, additional cartoons here too. Maybe Tom and Jerry, a couple of car Tom and Jerry car cartoons from the same year, I believe. Uh, anyway, Little Women uh, from 1933, one of the earliest film versions of uh, the Little Women of the novel, uh, starring Catherine Hepburn. 
here. Um, that's a Warner Archive release, as is Gay Paris. Uh, Wichita from 1955, a Cinemascope uh, crime thriller. This is uh, 1955, Joel McRae. And this is uh, takes place in 1874, actually. It's a, it's a Western about Wyatt Earp and Joel McRae accepting the dangerous job as law enforcement officer in the wild settlement of Wichita in 1874. I had it confused with something else. So anyway, Jacques Tourneur, who had previously directed The Cat People, the original, uh, he directs this, uh, also co-starring Bear Miles and Lloyd Bridges and Wallace Ford and Peter Graves and Edgar Buchanan. So, And... Um, the Complete Story of Film, this is one I did receive a review copy of, and it's quite good. I'm still making my way through it. It's a 15-hour documentary on the history of film from the uh, from its earliest inception up until the digital age. And it's directed by Mark Cousins, and it's really, uh, really thorough. He's really, he covers it decade by decade with each chapter, and there's a beautiful book here that comes with it, and uh, just a lot of terrific archival footage and some interviews. And so the complete story of film is a music box films release. If you're a serious film fan, I would recommend picking that one up and uh spin out uh, starring Elvis. This is 1966 uh, Elvis doing what he does. He's a race car driver in this one. Uh, you know, his, his professions change, changes, <laughs> change from film to film, but the, uh, the plots remain the same. And, this and is so one. do the songs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so anyway, uh, Elvis and Spin Out, the Warner Archive release, uh, and this, uh, the transfer, I'm told, is quite splendid on this. Uh, Father's Little Dividend, which was the sequel to Father of the Bride from 1950. The original Father of the Bride, I believe, was 1950. This is 1951 sequel. They put this into fast turnaround after the success of the first one, and you get uh, Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor returning, and uh, uh, pretty well regarded, I think. But yeah, wanna, I wanna... I have a ten word review for this. Okay, and I think it it follows along what you just said. Affection retained in first film pays off handsomely in second. Very good. <laughs> yeah, a long time since I've seen this one, but. Uh, I remember it being quite quite charming for what it was. And I guess that will pretty much cover all of the August releases. 